Uh, one of my favorite uh, fictional characters is Ted Lasso. It's a show on Apple TV. It's about a football coach from Kansas that becomes a soccer coach in England. Um, it's obviously a very fictional story. But one of my favorite characters in Ted Lasso's show is a character called uh, named Danny Rojas. Danny transfers onto the club about halfway through Ted's first season, and he loves, loves, loves soccer or football. He bounces around the practice field and the locker room, and everywhere he goes, he says, football is life. He tells every player and manager and coach and fan, football is life. Danny Rojas believes this and lives in turn like this is true. Now in Romans 5, the Apostle Paul is bouncing in and out of deep thought after deep thought, hard teaching after hard teaching, thoughtful word after thoughtful word. But the refrain here in Romans 5 is Jesus is Life. Jesus is life. The superabundant grace of God overflows into Paul's being, and everywhere Paul treads, he's declaring to this church and to us, Jesus is life. Today, four things. Jesus is life because he dies for the ungodly at just the right time. Jesus is life because he saves us from the wrath of God. Jesus is life because he reconciles us to God. And Jesus is life because he saves us by his life. First, Jesus is life because he dies for the ungodly at just the right time. Verses 6 to 8. Last night I watched the NFL Hall of Fame speeches. I try to do this every year. Last night there were 12 of them. This class was actually the 2020 class. Since last year all the Hall of Fame festivities and enshrinements were postponed. And so... Today, I think there's another 12 that will get enshrined and speeches will be made today for the 2021 class. But I love listening to them because, in part, it connects me in some ways way back to my childhood, like the heroes of the game I grew up watching. And it also connects me to their stories, their histories. And now, as I've gotten older, all the players have gotten younger, and those players are players I have actually watched as an adult, um, not just as a kid. But I, I still love to hear about their journeys. I love to see how they put their speeches together. Some have their aim of just being pure gratitude. They just want to thank everybody, every coach, every person that like took care of their equipment, every person that they can think of. They just want to say, take this moment as they don the gold jacket to say thank you. And then there's others who wax eloquently through their speeches about like some theme, something that they want to get across to the audience. They, they want to take this moment to tell the world, this is life. This is what life looks like. This is what life is about. And then there's even others who get even more existential, who describe their experience of being a football player and post-football life in more difficult and hard ways. Well, Last night, Cliff Harris, who played for the Cowboys in the 70s, he was a favorite of mine when I was a kid, got enshrined into the Hall of Fame. And he went to a tiny Baptist school in Arkansas. He was actually playing semi-pro football, like, like tackle football with a bunch of adults, but not like getting paid for it. He was just like doing it on the side when he was actually invited to Cowboys training camp. And he proceeded to make the team against incredible odds, and after 34 years of waiting, 
he made it into the Football Hall of Fame. And his speech featured lots of talk about the three things in football. Football, faith, and family. And of course, hard work. Thanks, Lori, for that laugh. I appreciate that. I, I liked the speech, but the theology of the speech sounded a bit more like the maxim, the maxim you've probably heard, that sometimes you might even think is in the Bible, God helps those who help themselves. It's a pretty apt description of our American Western ideals. God helps those who help themselves. It's meant to inspire us to hard work, right? Like, if you want God's help, and you do, right? If you want God to be on your side, and you do, right? You want him to bless you. If you want him to show favor to you, then make sure you're giving it 110%. Now, as Paul has spent a lot of ink telling us that all of us are in such a bad predicament because of the powers of sin and death that we can't actually help ourselves. Like, no one is righteous, no, not one. We, we can't help ourselves unless by helping ourselves, it's just that, helping ourselves at the expense of others. And so here in verse 6, when he says, while we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. Paul makes it clear God helps those who can't help themselves. Now note the descriptions in verse 6, while we were still weak or while we were powerless. Also in verse 6, when we were ungodly. In verse 8, while we were a sinner. And in verse 10, while we were enemies. That while, emphasizing the present condition of our past selves, where the Godhead stepped in and helped us. It wasn't after we cleaned up or got better or rectified our situation. It wasn't with us offering what little we could offer. It wasn't us um, repeating mantras, I, like a little train, I think I can, I think I can. No amount of hard work or determination was capable of helping us. It was our state of unhelping or our state of disrepair, our, our state of being an enemy of Jesus, that his way, his message came to us. When we weren't right people, Christ came to us and saved us. Now, don't miss this, because you've heard this verse over and over again in your life if you've grown up in the church. This is a supernatural act. Paul emphasizes this in verse, verses 7 and 8. Verse 7, death on behalf of a righteous person rarely happens. And death for an unrighteous person never happens. And death for a whole community, city, country, world of unrighteous persons, this is supernatural. It can only be done by God. And this is the love shown. This is the love the Spirit spreads abroad our hearts. This kind of love, an inconceivable love, an otherworldly love. To emphasize this, Paul throws in the Greek word for yet or but or while. And yet, and yet, and yet, Paul says, and yet while we were sinners, and yet while we were weak, and yet while we were enemies. At that time, Christ saved us. This is just the right time, Paul says. In the TV show and movie, uh, The A-Team, one of my favorite shows growing up, uh, in middle school especially, the leader of the ragtag group of guys named Hannibal would finish each episode of the show smoking a cigar and saying, I love it when a plan 
comes together. After the A-team has miraculously saved everyone with some crazy, unexpected, explosive thing, Hannibal would say, I love it when a plan comes together. The Christ event was the plan of God, and God orchestrated it at just the right time. At just the right time, the plan of God comes together, Paul says. This is Kronos versus Kairos, right? The, the way the Greek world viewed time. There was Kronos, time marching on. Time just keeps going. It's a countdown. It's a clock. That's Kronos time. And then there was Kairos. That is time that's pregnant with meaning and opportunity. Here Paul says, at just the right time, Kairos, Christ died for the ungodly. God did not send regards. He didn't just think good thoughts. He didn't just have love in general. He didn't just think about us. The God of Scripture is not impersonal. He becomes a man born of a virgin in a particular time and place. Friends, the gospel is always contextualized. God always moves towards us in language, in a place, with flesh and bone, in the actual world, not the ethereal world, not the higher plane place of thinking, but in the warp and the woof, in the physical and the base parts of our world, Jesus comes into times, history, and places. Jesus comes into the Roman world with Roman roads and Caesar, who's described as a son of God, into a Jewish world where a remnant had returned to practice their faith and they believed in the apocalyptic, meaning that there was this revealing that was taking place in their world at that time, and into this world to a young virgin named Mary who was waiting for the anointed with her family, who were waiting for the consolation of God to come, where Messiah was pregnant on their lips, where they were hoping about this world to come, at just that right time, Jesus comes. And this Jesus comes just at the right time for you. While you're still weak, still weak, while you're still ungodly, while you're still sinners, while you're still enemies, at just that right time, Christ comes for you. At just that right time, Christ died for you. Not when you were better, not when you were whole, not when you cleaned yourself up, not with your getting the right words and phrases down on your lips like church words. No, this Jesus comes at this time Right now, here in the hardest places. And he comes today, now, in this moment, as we're gathered together. Because right now is Kairos time. Time pregnant with the very presence of God. And what is being said to you in this moment, at just the right time? Grace is for you. This grace meets you in this place at this time, while you are who you are right now, while you're struggling with what you are struggling with, that could be a very personal sin kind of thing you're struggling with or just a very real concern or trouble or trial in this life. Right now, when you're most celebratory or full of joy and you're excited about the future, right now in the midst of fears and the the fears of the pandemic coming back right now in the conflicts of our day, right now when friends have become enemies, right now grace is for you. 
And how could that be? Well, it's a supernatural way. It's because God died on a cross in the person of Jesus. The Son of God offers life for us on a cross because he took our place. He took my place. He took your place. He took our place on a cross, a cross that was built by Gentile hands, a cross that placed him on it through Jewish arguments. Jesus is placed there and gives up his life for those same Gentile and Jewish hands that placed him there. So remember this morning that grace is always incongruent. You're going to hear this over and over again in Paul. You can't get qualified. It happens while you're enemies. Your credit line is always below 620. The points you've earned by helping yourself is always zero. Grace is always incongruent. God's love is always for the unworthy. And this might feel offensive. In fact, the Bible thinks of this as offensive, that God would love the godless, that Christ would die for the godless, that God justifies the godless. It is offensive. And this morning, you might be sitting here thinking, I feel so powerless right now. Like, in my life, there are things outside of my control that are tossing me on wave after wave of trouble. If there's anything that describes this time, by the way, it's lack of control. What are you trying to do in the midst of that? Yesterday, I took Deacon to the pool. He's had a handful of swimming lessons the last few weeks. So we get in, and he tries to start to swim. We're in the, like, three-foot section of the pool And as he does, he's buffeted by his own splashes. He's flailing about, freaking out, trying to swim. And every time the water splashes up, and every time he puts his head in the water, he immediately puts his feet on the ground and stands up. And so I try to calm him down, and I tell him, and I never would have done this with my oldest boy, by the way. Like, I would have been, like, giving him a lecture. Um, With Deacon, I'm just like, okay, buddy, like, you got to, like, lay flat, and I put my hands under him to support him, and I help him lay on his back, and I talk to him about filling his lungs with air, and then slowly letting it out, and as he holds his breath, he starts to float, and he starts to swim, and then I turn him over, and I I have him put his head in in the water in the same way to float and then swim. He stops flailing. He feels powerless, and he stops flailing, and that's when he's actually held up. When we feel powerless, we often want to rail against what's making us feel powerless, and that actually does the opposite. It makes us realize how even more powerless we are. And this, according to Paul, by the way, is just the right time and the right place. The time pregnant, the out-of-control place, when we start flailing and splashing and bucking up against it, that we can float into the presence of Jesus. I think this leads to the second way you should think about this, is how are you with your enemies? Like, who is your enemy right now? 
Like when you hear their name and you see their post online and you pass them to the office or you have a Zoom meeting with them, or maybe you even sleep next to them, who's your enemy? How are you with them? Is there enmity, distance, and the want to and need for greater distance? Is there 40 lashes with words from pen or tongue, gossip and anger? Remember, you were an enemy of God when he came to you. And if you have been loved when you were like this, do you love? Jesus tells the parable of the unmerciful servant in Matthew 18. Isn't it interesting that this parable comes right after Jesus' teaching on dealing with conflict in the church? The question Peter poses is about forgiveness. How often, Jesus, should we forgive? And Jesus says, well, 70 times 7, essentially saying, all the time. And then he tells a story. There's a king who had servants, and one servant comes and can't pay what is owed the, the king. The servant was then to become a debtor in debtor's prison and would work to pay off the debt. But the servant cries out for mercy, and the master hears this and cancels the debt. Now notice when the debt was canceled. He, the debt was canceled while he was still in debt, while he did nothing to repay the debt. While he just could only cry out for mercy, the debt was canceled. And so the servant forgiven, who owes the master's everything, goes out and he has his own servant, and that own servant owes him a much smaller amount of money. And that servant begs the servant who's been forgiven a lot for forgiveness, just like he begged the master for forgiveness. But the forgiven servant doesn't forgive. And when the master hears this, he is infuriated and he hands the servant over. Friends, this is a unique time for us. There is so much conflict and noise, camps and tribes, so many enemies and perceived enemies. This is the water for us. It's what we swim in and we don't even recognize it as water anymore. And it's even true for the church. We set up camps here. We take sides here. And we're no different than the church that Paul is writing this letter to in Rome, who set up camps based on Jew and Gentile, Roman citizen and non-citizen, servant and free. And Paul reminds them, Jesus is life. Because he meets us while we are enemies. When we have gone to them like Matthew 18, first we do that with them instead of talking with others about them because this is the way God has provided for reconciliation, which Paul will get to in a second. We do this because Jesus did this with us, and he is our life. So Jesus is our life because he saves us, number two, from wrath reserved for the ungodly. Verse 9, Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from his wrath? Here Paul uses a comparison from lesser to greater, light to heavy. We have been justified by his blood, so how much more will we be saved from his wrath? Paul does this to inspire confidence and trust that in Christ God has brought complete salvation. Jesus is truly life. If God's love delivered Christ to death for sinners, for the unworthy, for enemies, how much more then will it save them from his wrath? He's done the difficult thing. 
The supernatural thing, dying for the undeserving, justifying sinners, if God did this, then he will surely save them from God's wrath. Now remember, in this letter to Rome, Paul has said that wrath, the wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness. And how is it revealed? By God turning us over, giving us what we want instead of God. In wrath, we get what we want. Wrath is God forsakenness. This is the end of being turned over, being God forsaken. Paul here says Jesus is life because Christ saves us from being God forsaken. Jorgen Moltmann has a quote about this. Hear it. When God became a man in Jesus of Nazareth, he not only enters into the finitude of man, our humanity, the fact that we're going to die, but in his death on a cross, he also enters into the situation of man's God-forsakenness. In Jesus, he does not die the natural death of a finite being, but the violent death of the criminal on the cross, the death of complete abandonment by God. The suffering in the passion of Jesus is abandonment, rejection by God, his Father. God does not become a religion so that man participates in by corresponding religious thoughts and feelings, i.e., God helps those who help themselves. God does not become a law so that man participates in through obedience to a law. God does not become an ideal so that man achieves community with him through constant striving. No, God humbles himself and takes upon himself the eternal death of the godless and the God-forsaken, so that all the godless and the God-forsaken can experience communion with him. We have been justified by a God who humbles himself, takes on our death. It is by Jesus' blood, Paul says here, his death, the shedding of his blood that we have been justified. By his bloods, our sins have been forgiven, and by his blood, we have been made righteous. And by his blood, we have also been saved then by the wrath of God that's reserved for enemies of God. We are no longer God-forsaken because God took that on for us. My question for you this morning is, do you live like you're saved from the wrath of God or do you live like one who has been God-forsaken? Charlie Brown from the kids' comic Peanuts lived like the world was always against him. He had a dark cloud always over his head. He was a woe-is-me character. Lucy always acted as a foil, always pulling out the football. This was life in microcosm for Charlie Brown. The chair is always being pulled out from under him. Just when he thinks he's arrived, back to the ground he goes. Charlie Brown takes on flesh for us when we experience suffering and trial, when we think these sufferings and trials mean for us that we are God-forsaken. Jesus can't be here. In this moment, it's just absence. Good grief and ugh become our life mantras. We are saved from the wrath of God, but act like we still live under its dark cloud. The world is conspired against us. We're prisoners of fate. Murphy's law rains down blow after blow. Wrath hasn't left. But Jesus says no, or Paul says no. 
Jesus' life because he's removed that wrath. You aren't God-forsaken. In fact, these moments that look God-forsaken, that look like they're just chronos moments where time is just eating time and destroying life, are actually kairos moments where the life of Jesus invades and God-forsakenness becomes pregnant with God's presence. Jesus is life because he removes wrath. Jesus is life because he reconciles us to God. Side note, it isn't just God that we're reconciled to because of Jesus. We're also reconciled to our world and even to our very selves through this God. Verses 10 and 11, For if while we were still enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, and then later through Jesus, we have now received reconciliation. Notice the pastness of this. Paul continues the comparison. If he died for the unworthy and saved them from wrath, he will reconcile you to God. If you've ever been an enemy of someone that you love, if you've ever broken relationship with someone you used to love, you know the pain of being unreconciled. If you know the pain of a child who's left and has not returned, or the pain of a child who has left a parent and has not returned, you know what it feels like to be unreconciled. God has made a way for you to be reconciled. For that distance and enmity to be no more. You see, reconciliation is God acting to make a sinner right with himself. In reconciliation, we participate in the life of Jesus, the Son of God, Father, and Spirit. We have been not just reconciled through Jesus to the Father, but we've been ushered into the community of the Trinity through Jesus the Son. We are reconciled to the Godhead through the death of Jesus. And we are sent then as ministers of reconciliation because of the resurrection and power of the Spirit. Paul furthers this thought in 2 Corinthians 5, 16 to 21. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we were once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in new Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In Christ, God reconciled the world to himself. In Christ, our sins are not counted against us. In Christ, we become new creations. In Christ, we are made, transformed from enemies into ministers of reconciliation. Will you receive it? To receive it, you must see your need of it. The story is told by James Edwards in his commentary of Henry David Thoreau as he lay dying. He was asked by his sister if he had made peace with God. And Thoreau uh, reportedly answered, 
I did, not, did, I did not know we argued. It was a ready reply, but wide of the gospel. Thoreau evidently believed that human nature is basically good and that apart from fault, here and there, God finds little objectionable in the human race. Paul disagrees. Humanity cannot reconcile itself to God. If there is to be reconciliation, it must be affected from God's side, not our own. We are not distant relatives of God. We are insurrectionist against a worthy king. And God reconciles us insurrectionist by giving his very son's life for us. I remember sitting at a passion conference and the song that was being played was, You Are My King. And I couldn't get that thought out of my head. How could a king die, send his son for me, an insurrectionist? A rebel. That's what God's done. Will you receive it? And will you be a minister of reconciliation? And what does that look like? You are, Paul says, an ambassador. You represent the kingdom of God in the kingdom of the world. Paul says his kingdom is known by reconciliation. So how do you know if you're representing God's kingdom? It is you bringing reconciliation. If you're not bringing reconciliation, if you're bringing fighting and conflict and deceit, you're not bringing the kingdom of God. You are not representing the king and his kingdom. Paul says God makes his appeal. Now think about this. This is amazing that God would make his appeal to someone else, to be reconciled to himself through us, through our life and our words and our actions. Paul says, we implore strongest possible language to persuade, to call others, be reconciled to God. Will you represent the kingdom of God? Will you be a conduit through which God makes an appeal? Will you implore others, be reconciled to God? By the way, I think... The minister of reconciliation also brings that ministry to all relationships. Paul will unpack this in Romans, but we act as ambassadors of King Jesus when we reconcile other parties together to each other, not just to God. I I listened to a Veritas Forum pod this week about a guy named Daryl Davis. Daryl Davis is a blues, uh, black blues musician who brings builds friendships with members of the KKK. He's convinced over 200 to leave their organization. You can see his documentary called Accidental Courtesy. In the film, Daryl tells the story about how he started this and why. One night in a club where he was playing, a member of the Klan struck up a conversation with him, and he wasn't sure how to take it at first. He had never met a white person willing to say he was a Klansman, and Daryl was, for this Klansman, the only black person he had ever talked to. And Daryl began to think, how can you hate me when you don't even know me? So Daryl decided the way to handle the situation was to be the Klansman's friend and to see if by their interaction together, the Klansman might change his mind regarding his group's hateful ideology. Daryl would call his friend and say, for example, I'm headed to Lowe's. You want to go with me? And he would just come. There would just be all sorts of reasons as they further developed their relationship to get together. And as time progressed, their friendship grew. And the Klansman's family rose in the ranks of the Klansmanship. Eventually, he became the Imperial Wizard, which is the national leader of the Klan. But Daryl 
was still always there for them, for him, even loving him while he was an enemy. And the result, Daryl Davis will proudly show you his friend's clan robes, which his friend gave him the day he made the decision to leave the clan, all because of his friendship with Daryl. Daryl persevered in love until the day that man's eyes were opened. And today, Daryl Davis has a collection of clans robes given to him by the multitude of clansmen with whom he became friends. And rather than staying in his own circles of self-affirmation, Daryl says he reached out and because of his relationship to Christ, became a minister of reconciliation. Daryl will say we should be people who have civil conversation instead of talking about the other person or at the other person or past the other person. What can happen when we talk with the other person? And if that does not describe, in a nutshell, what Jesus has done for us in reconciling us to God, in becoming one with us, taking on our flesh with us, taking on our sin with us, dying in our place for us to make us ministers of reconciliation. Jesus is life because he reconciles us to God and transforms us into reconciling agents of love. Last, Jesus is life because he saves us by his life. Verse 11, what does this mean? Notice the verb tenses in 9 through 11. We were God's enemies. We have been justified. We shall be saved. Edward says God's love is past, present, and Future In theological terminology, Paul is speaking of justification, the act whereby we are made right with God, sanctification, the process by which God renews us according to his purpose, and glorification, the completion of salvation in the future and the fulfillment of hope. For the present, the believer lives between two worlds, a theme which Paul develops and will develop further in chapter 6. Paul refers to the renewed life variously as a race as a dying and arising, as a struggle, as a battle. But the one thing in which the believer takes confidence is the cross. The cross stands as an irrevocable demonstration of God's faithfulness in the past, and so hence the believer can trust God for all things in the present and the future. His love is our hope. St. Chrysanthemum said, said it like this, If God gave a great gift to enemies... Will he give anything less to his friends? Jesus is life because he saves us by his life. He has been raised. He is alive and even now prays in heaven and advocates for us. Dane Ortland in Gentle and Lowly says, He is righteous. He and he alone. When we are unrighteous, he is righteous. Even our best repenting of our sin is itself plagued with more sin, needing more forgiveness. To come to the Father without an advocate is hopeless. To be allied with an advocate, one who came and sought me out rather than waiting for me to come to him, one who is righteous in all his ways I am not, this is calm and confidence before the Father. His advocacy rears up when occasion requires it. He rises up and defends our case based on the merits of his suffering and death, and your salvation is not merely a matter of saving formula, but a saving person. Jesus is life. If we are reconciled to God, how much more will we be saved by his life? Do you want this? Do you want Jesus to be the thing that you fill in as the blank? Jesus is life. Is he? 
Do you want him to speak in your defense? Do you want him to rejoice at your weaknesses and your sinfulness and your enmity because it puts you into a condition to experience his life? And Paul says this is how you apply it. At the news of this, what do you do? In verse 11, he says, you rejoice. We rejoice that this is our story. We have been reconciled. We rejoice that it is our calling. We've been made ministers of reconciliation. We rejoice that our life has been found by God and that in Jesus we've been given life. The parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15 illustrates that life-giving love. Willful and defiant, the younger son demanded his share of the father's blessing, later to be rudely awakened in the outside world, returning to his father and expecting what he deserved, censure, humiliation, if lucky, probation. The boy received what he did not deserve, shoes, a ring, a bouquet, and most of all, his father's delight in the infinite worth of the one who is lost and now found. Reconciliation is being found by God, surrendering to his life and love by receiving the gift, by entering into the party, receiving the honor that you did not deserve of having a party given in your name, can you believe it, my name, with a banner over me that says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Press into that this morning, friends. How do you know Jesus' life? Because his banner over you is love. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would help us as we come to your table this morning. The table is a place of reconciliation, where in living color you make known to us how you've reconciled us by body and blood. We come and gather around a table with you, God, reconciled, forgiven, young sons and daughters, who've received robe and ring and a party in our name, all because of the work of someone else. And this table also calls us, there's an ethic that you give us at this table to make things right, to be reconciled to our brothers and sisters around the table. So we pray this morning you would do that. You would help us to humble ourselves, to go to one another and seek forgiveness and to be reconciled in the ways that we need to be reconciled with one another because that's what you've brought us and you've changed us into ministers of reconciliation. So help us today as we come to the table to experience this and to live this out, both here and outside these walls, to make appeals, God. Help us to be a people who are, face our fears and make appeals, be reconciled to God, to our friends and family and neighbors. Be with us, God, we pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.